My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Pamela Anderson has spent most of her life having other people tell her story. Maybe it's her image in Baywatch or in Playboy. Maybe it's her ex-husbands talking about her in interviews. Or, I don't know, a major TV series about the theft of a tape of her and her husband having sex. Pamela Anderson is saying that's enough. It's time for her to tell her own story. And she'll be here to tell you how that feels. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. What do you say about Pamela Anderson? From Ladysmith, British Columbia, plucked out of obscurity at a football game, ends up posing in Playboy, then becomes one of the most famous people in the world for a long time. She was in Home Improvement, then she was in Baywatch, and then she gets married to Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. And you know the story, a a tape of her and her husband having sex is stolen, it's uploaded to the internet, she goes through divorces and pain and controversies, the whole thing, right? Everything I just told you, every judgment or criticism or like how she became a symbolic figure, towards the end of this conversation, it dawns on you that everything you know about Pamela Anderson has been told to you by somebody else, typically by somebody else trying to make a couple of bucks. But Pamela Anderson is taking her own story back. That's the whole point, I think, of this conversation. And don't get me wrong, it's a fun conversation. She's really funny and kind and has an incredible perspective on love and life. But yeah, this is someone who wants control of her own story for once. She has a new memoir. It's called Love, Pamela. She's also made a documentary called Pamela, A Love Story. And and we talked about both. But just I want to give you a heads up on a couple of things. For one, we taped this interview well before the writers and actors strike. And she does reference some abuse in her life and how those events affected her. So just heads up on that. Here's our conversation, um, starting with this moment early on where I said to myself, I'm talking to Pamela Anderson. I must say, I didn't know if I would ever get a chance to meet you. <laughs> Pamela Anderson, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great. This is my last interview of this big, long press tour, so we saved the best for last. Did I hear you're on the Did I hear you're on the New York Times bestseller list? Yes. Number two. What do you make of that? Behind Harry. Or Prince Harry. Prince Harry. Yeah. Behind Prince Harry. <laughs> how, how has it been doing the press for this thing? Because it's one thing to tell the stories in the book. It's another thing to get asked about them. Yeah, you kind of think you're off the hook when you write a book and do a documentary. You think, okay, now I've done that. But then you have to do all the press for the book and then you have to retell all the stories. And so it's, a, it's hard work, but it's, it's definitely rewarding. And it's been very therapeutic, therapeutic? for everybody around me. <laughs> it's been therapeutic for, for you? or Yes, for me, of course, to kind of go back and revisit those chapters in my life and kind of put it to rest and uh, have the documentary just be uh, just complete, you know, 100% just disclosure, full disclosure, and not really having any part of that, just saying, here's the key to my archives, and I know I haven't murdered anybody, so anything other than that, I think I'm pretty good. Yeah. So it was been, it's been an interesting release, relief. Now I feel like the, the whole story is there, so, you know, we kind of need to be kinder to each other, maybe give each other a break sometimes, and when I look at people that are um, 
you know, just even acting out or misdirected anger, I always think, what's their childhood like? You know, we kind of, we're whole people and not just tidbits of things that we throw together for press headlines. I mean, you you would know that more than most. I mean, you, you have been sort of, I mean, one thing that's really clear from this documentary and from this book is how you're talked about, like how people talk about you, how people talked about you, especially during those big, those kind of big years. Um, so I would understand that you would be like, hey, I'm a full person. I have a story. I am more than just these headlines. I am more than just this narrative. And as you said, I have a childhood. Mm-hmm. How was it? How was your childhood in, in Ladysmith? Well, I mean, I had a I had a very adventurous kind of um, wonderful upbringing. I mean, my upbringing was in nature and at the beach. I mean, I was really, really fortunate, really fortunate. My parents were madly in love, very young. Um, and, you know, this, they're still together. They're more in love than ever. And they're my heroes. But, you know, we have, um, we all have, you know, nothing is perfect. No human is perfect. And we all got through it. Yeah, I mean, I should say for people who don't know, you're, you're, there was sort of a, a abuse from your, it's weird to say this Babysitter, I know, it's hard to, like, it's like, yeah. I talk a lot about it in the book, I talk about just different things that, I wanted to talk about pivotal moments in my in my life, and I, there's definitely more good than bad in my life, but there were moments of um, that were difficult in my childhood, uh, a babysitter, um, uh, you know, she molested me when I was, you know, probably about six years old, and I wished her dead, and then she died, and it's just a bunch of um, crazy things that have happened. <laughs> I just got through it. I think with my imagination, I still feel like, um, you know, I don't, I don't feel like a victim. I don't feel. I feel like there's all there's things that happen in people's lives, and you have to get over them because <laughs> they accumulate. You know, one th- something happens to you, then another thing happens, and it kind of compounds. Yeah. So it's great to be able to go back and feel those feelings and get through those and not hold. Uh, just forgiveness is a big thing. How's the, how does the sharing of it feel? Like, how does the, I mean, in the, uh, we, we don't have to talk about this too much, right. but you're right. There's, there's stories in the beginning about, you know, you, you were molested by a babysitter and then, you know, you, you hope that babysitter dies. She then dies. I can't imagine how much, what, what that would do then to you a as a child. Then a kid thinks that I did it. You know, I thought my magical mind. And you, <laughs> might, you must have felt guilt or you must have. I felt have, guilt. I yeah. didn't, couldn't tell my parents anything then. And then also just like, you know, boyfriends who abused you, you know, men, men who abused you. What does it feel like when you write these down and share them with with people? I think that was the hardest stuff to write because, but then I feel like the hardest, you know, you you dig down for these words and you want to explain it. You want to be honest and you want to go there. And I think, oh God, I can't write that. And then I go, oh no, I have to write that. Now that I've said that I can't write that, that's, that means those words have to be written. Those are the difficult ones. And so I think you kind of, it's helpful because you can kind of set the stage maybe for somebody else to talk about those things. Because it's it's not an easy thing to talk about. It's sometimes it's easier to write. Yeah. I mean, writing about it was one thing, but then having to talk about it now and talk about it in um, in interviews and things, I think is is hard too. But I don't want to not go there because it's part of my life, and I and I've learned how to live with joy and choosing happiness was always something that I worked on. I, I understand. I think what what I'm curious about is like when you actually because you wrote this book yourself. It's important right. for me to to mention that like there was no ghostwriter. No ghostwriter. Nothing. You very rare. Yes, very rare. But I was always a writer. I wrote journals my whole life. My journal was my best friend. I've always written. Your poetry in the book is is really beautiful and really kind of stands out at the very beginning. 
what I'm curious about is when you write these stories, like physically, like when you press the period mm-hmm. after you write the story down on a word processor or however you did it, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's, the, what's the emotion? Well, if I wrote things down in my journal, I just felt like at least there's proof. I don't know. As a little kid, I always thought there's proof. There's proof that it happened. There's, um, there's proof, just proof of existence, yeah. proof of everything. Writing for me felt like proof of existence. Like I wanted to write down the true story. So that if something were to happen to me, I mean, this, I know it sounds dramatic, but that's always was part of my reason for writing, that I wanted the truth to be out there no matter if, if something were to happen to me in my life, that these thoughts and emotions and feelings were recorded. I don't know why. I just I have no idea why I didn't ever expect to be, you know, in, in, on TV or famous or anything. Even as a child, I felt that. And I felt like I could let it go a little bit. If I wrote it down, then I had to stop thinking about it. If you wrote it down... You, something happened and you, good or bad, right. and you wrote it down, it was, it was there for the record of anything ever happened to you, it, the story <laughs> was told. I know. It strikes me that you were worried about something happening to you at such a young age, you know? I don't know what that was, but that was, journaling too was something I did to know what I was feeling. If I wrote something down, I could read it and go, oh, that's how I'm feeling. Because, you know, your head, you're thinking about so many things, but when you're writing, it all makes sense. So that was also an exercise I did. You know, there's something to be said about like when you say, you know, I, I, um, I don't know why I thought I, I wrote all this stuff down. I don't know why I was worried about something happening to me because you know there was no no expectation of it. But I, I, I someone said this thing to me one time. They said that 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 people that remarkable things have happened to are not comforted by percentages. Hmm. Essentially, if something very rare has happened to you. You are no longer comforted by, oh, for God's sake, Pamela, 95% of people don't have to deal with that. Because, no. because you go, hey, a, very stri- a lot of very strange things have happened to me. You yeah, know what I, I mean? Wanted, and I wanted to express how I was feeling about those things. I think that's what was the most important part of writing for me was that I wanted to find those words because we all we rely on such, you know, there's a group of words that we always use, but what are the words that we don't always use? Maybe I can explain this in a way that's going to be um, more descriptive, more, you know, something different. And I felt um, I wanted to kind of touch on things, but be descriptive in those moments and set the stage and, and kind of almost think of it as a movie or a script or a play. And so I felt really drawn to taking everything that I've learned in my life and try and paint the picture of something that felt like you were maybe sitting at the movies and watching. Tell me the movie of you getting discovered at the BC Lions game. (laughs) Well, I went to a BC Lions game with some neighbors who had free tickets and Labatt's Beer t-shirts. And if we wore the Labatt's Beer t-shirts, we could get in for free. So we all went and I didn't want to go, but my girlfriend really wanted to go. And we went, and I guess the cameraman zoomed in on me and put me up on the big jumbotron. And I remember looking up going, oh, I look terrible. Before I realized it was me, I was already judging myself, thinking, I look terrible. And then I went, oh, my gosh, that's me up there. And then my friends made me stand up and hold my T-shirt. And they kind of had me going back and forth all night and ended up on Monday Night Football ads. And Labatt's asked me to do a commercial. And then the gym I was working at, I was working at a tanning salon at the gym. (laughs) And they asked me to do their advertising. And then, you know, I was just doing all these crazy things. And I thought, and then Playboy had called me because I was listed in the phone book. And I said, <laughs> no. And then I... They had seen the uh, Monday Night Yeah, so this was just the... all kind of going really fast. And then um, I decided at one time, because 
my boyfriend was really jealous, and we were just in the middle of a fight, and, and the phone rang, and it was Marilyn Grabowski from Playboy, and she said, would you like to come down and do the Play, a Playboy cover? And I just looked at him and said, Playboy? <laughs> sure. And then he threw silverware at me until I could get out the door. <laughs> just like, just be, it was crazy. Anyway, I ended up going to L.A., my first plane ride. First plane ride ever. Yeah, and landed on Gay Pride Day. It was quite a parade. It was just... What was on your mind on the plane? I just was looking out at the clouds and, you know, I, I was reading a Shirley MacLaine book, Out on a Limb. And so I had that book with me and I was just looking out at the clouds and then seeing the city coming. And then I remember when we landed, I was like, yay! You know, and no one else was <laughs> clapping and saying, yay, <laughs> we landed, we did it. It was just, yeah, I was very excited. Um. It must have been so overwhelming to go from kind of complete anonymity to from going to one sports game. Well, and I was on my own in the plane and, and I on my own going to Los Angeles. And then I landed and it was Gay Pride Day. So we're getting through a parade and just these beautiful people everywhere. It's just eye candy. It just was like an explosion of bright colors. Mm -hmm. And then to get to my hotel. And then I remember my hotel, I remember thinking, can I use the phone? Can I... I didn't know what room service was. You know, I ended up going to the, it was the Russian tea room actually at the Bellage at that time. I remember seeing Shirley MacLaine the, in the, the restaurant. The person whose book you were just reading. I had the book. Wow. Yeah. And she, and I was staring at her a bit too long and then she like glared at me and I was scared. <laughs> you know, that Shirley MacLaine kind of glare. I guess I was looking at her too long. But it was just one thing after another after that. You, you, when you pose for Playboy, you can tell from the documentary and from the book that something changes in you? Well, I was extremely shy, if anyone can believe that. I was painfully shy. I actually felt paralyzed by it. And I was doing this as a leap of faith. I thought, I can't, I have, if, if somebody else can do it, I can do it. But I was just shaking. And I remember the first roll of film. I, I mean, I was covered. I wasn't nude at all, but I was nude underneath the jacket. And we did was only one roll of film because I actually physically got sick. I was so up, was so nervous. But um, I just remember thinking, let's do this. And I really felt like I was falling off a cliff. And I just kind of let myself go and opened my eyes to the first flash. And bam, there I was shooting, you know, you know, to the side, smiling, all this kind of stuff. And I just, it was really a leap of faith. And I, and I think that that's where I kind of took my power back. I felt empowered by it. I felt like a woman. I felt like I had claimed my sensuality, my sexuality, that this was my body and I was in control. That people had, my understanding of that is that people had tried to take that from you or tried to own you, own your body, own your sexuality, and then that's what you mean by take it back? Well, this, this with the, the times where I felt abused, you know, taken advantage of, when I was a young teenager and, again, with a boyfriend and his friends, and I felt really shut down. And that was, I think, what the shyness was. I felt really confused. And, you know, I, I tell this to people, too, and I work a lot with the National Domestic Violence Hotline. My foundation um, supports them. And we talk a lot about um, abuse and how it's a... Uh, it's it's something that's taken away from you, and I and I feel like I just really felt empowered for once, that my body was mine, and that I still wanted to be a sensual, sexy woman, but I had no idea how to be that without causing 
without people thinking of me differently. You know, I really felt when when I was when the, at twelve years old, when an older man uh, raped me, I felt like it was imprinted on my forehead. I, as much as I didn't want to tell anybody, I felt like everybody knew, and I felt I was so ashamed. And and then I, you know, it was just conf- it was just a very confusing time for me. And really, everything came together when I made the choice yeah. to be in Playboy. And I felt, you know, at the Playboy Mansion and just how things kind of. Yeah, I felt I felt safe there. Yeah. I mean, people think that's crazy, but actually, I, I knew when I was there that people were looking out for me, and yeah. and yeah, that's when the, a lot changed. Then I mean, and everything changed. I mean, it's from uh, Playboy that you then are cast in. Like, I think it's Married with Children, <laughs> yeah. and then Home Improvement, yeah. and then Baywatch, and Baywatch gets watched by 1.1 billion people. CJ, it's beautiful up here. You gotta love it, huh? I know it's beautiful, but. I miss the beach. You should come back to Baywatch. Yeah, rookie swim starts next week. Requalify, I'll get you a tower. Well, I guess there's nothing holding me here anymore, is there? It's unbelievable. They're still streaming Baywatch. It's crazy. H- how does how do you go? Like, do you remember the call that like, oh, th- we're going to do this show about lifeguards, and we want you to be a part of it? Or well, Playboy people, gets the call, right? Yeah, people were calling Playboy. I think they they I saw. On something lately, someone said they tried to get me to go there 12 times, but I thought Marina Del Rey seemed very exotic and very far away, and I wasn't going to drive there myself. And so at some point, I ended up going with a boyfriend, David Charvet, actually, and they ended up hiring both of us. You had no you had no intention of being an actor, Pamela? No. I thought actor people had actor children that had actor babies. I just didn't think that was even in the cards for me. I mm-hmm. had no idea what that even meant. So I just felt really grateful for every time I had a job. And I thought, I'm just going to go home as soon as this stops. It hasn't stopped. No. <laughs> <laughs> like the fame, you thought the yeah, fame the, was going to go away well, very quickly. I thought, quickly. you know, if I don't get another job, I mean, it just kept on going one thing after another. And then, of <laughs> course, I got married and had babies and, and you know, yeah. that there's all of that story. But, yeah, there's... It's quite a quite a wild ride, but it's nice to be home. It's nice to be yeah. home. I, I I came full circle. I knew I was going to end up back yeah. in Ladysmith at some point. I, I want to talk just a little bit about that wild ride, but I don't want to necessarily get into the details of it. Okay. So, so you know, the the fame very famously, most people's in proposal stories aren't famous. But very famously, when you meet Tommy Lee, um, you 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 know each other for four days, and you and you get married. Um, and then, um, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated after that. I think when I was reading the book that there were moments where I said she could write about this relationship. It's none of my business. But you could write about that relationship in a way that is tinged with anger and, and regret. Mm. But when I read it, it, there's a lot of love and joy for that time. Can you talk to me about that? I think when my kids were small, that was my favorite time. Hi, Brandon. <laughs> you go, hey. It's Daddy and Mommy. Okay, he's playing with Daddy. Baby, you're Daddy. It's a whole new life now. <laughs> uh, when we were all together. Because that's all I ever wanted was a family and kids. And to look after somebody. And to have that kind of heightened sense of romance. I mean, coming in as your knight in shining armor. Literally. Pamela, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I have waited my entire life to meet a woman as wonderful as you. I've only ever wanted to be a knight in shining armor. 
<laughs> he yeah, did. he wore a, he yeah. wore a, a night uh, outfit. I mean, yeah. we weren't able to use some of the footage of a, a birthday party I threw for him, which was quite wild. You know, I had the Mad Hatter hat on, and and you know, I, it was it was insane. It was insane. He was a clown. We came on a tour bus with all the Cirque du Soleil performers, a Ferris wheel, a, um, a, you know, circus mirrors in the bathroom, just like the birthday party of Lady Smith. You yeah, know, everyone same thing. dressed with the appetizers <laughs> hanging off their bikinis. I mean, it was just wild. Everything I could dream up, I did. Yeah, and it, we we had a great great time. Um, and so sometimes I think that that kind of romantic love might not be sustainable. And with all the mythology and fairy tales and everything I've read and, and in um, psychology behind mythology, they do say romantic love is unsustainable. But um, so that means that that was that. And, and I appreciate it. And I'm really happy where I'm at right now. Being, yeah. uh, the capacity to be alone is the capacity to love that great Osho quote. So that's what I'm working on. <laughs> We'll be right back. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, Here, There and Everywhere. Listen to Season 2 of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I feel great because I'm talking about the stuff that I care about. Like right now you're asking me questions about what I care about instead of my boyfriends and my boobs. You know, that's kind of what yeah, it always was, a, was. Yeah. And I was like, so, you know, but, but this is, I've all, this is, these are, these are the things I talk about with, you know, really close friends and you know, my kids. And it's this, it comes from the same place. It comes from my heart. If you've ever watched an interview with Pamela Anderson, like especially interviews from the 90s, you might know what she's talking about there. Over the past, say, 30 years, interviewers and journalists have spent a lot of time talking to Pamela Anderson about her image. As she mentioned there, like who she's dating, what she looks like. And one event in Pamela Anderson's life has kind of followed her everywhere. The time a private video was stolen from uh, Pamela and her ex-husband Tommy Lee's home. The tape was full of intimate moments, including uh, footage of them having sex. And one of the people that they'd hired to do some construction on their house stole an entire safe that had the tape inside. And from there, the tape was edited to keep the explicit and private parts of their sexual lives. And it was distributed online, becoming one of the very first, quote unquote, sex tapes to go viral. The story was just recently made into a series called Pam and Tommy. This is where the next half of my conversation with Pamela Anderson picks up. You never say sex tape, you only say the tape. Stolen property. Stolen home movies pro- that were spliced together. Home there movies. was never a tape made for distribution or a sex tape. It was home movies they spliced together because Tommy and I were naked all the time. I mean, we were just crazy yeah. two people in love. It was just us uh, naked on holidays yeah. and maybe there was one tiny little part that was more sexual, but it was more spliced together to look like we... Yeah. Made something. I still haven't seen it, so I'm not quite sure what sure, it is. Sure, sure. I mean, the, the, the footage in the documentaries is, is, is one of a, of a lot of love. What, what happens when that incredibly traumatic thing is made into kind of entertainment? There was that TV show, the Pam and Tommy TV show, which I know you haven't seen. Yeah. It was interesting to me, to be honest with you, because when I first heard about it, 
okay, they're going to make a dramatization of this time in, in Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee's life. But don't worry, they said. You know, it's going to be about, you know, the, the, the tremendous um, atrocities done to Pamela Anderson. It's going to be about her, her kind of goodness. And then... Quickly afterwards, I read, oh, but Pamela Anderson doesn't want anything to do with this. She I never want, had anything know, to yeah. do with it, and neither did Tommy. So I, it felt silly and superficial and shallow and rude. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, get, I always get concerned for my kids. You know, they're, we've gone, all gone through a lot together, and we get through things as they come, and, and we've always been very open and honest about all the things in our life. But I didn't really want that to come out. I thought that was silly. But I was already in the process of doing a documentary and writing my book. So it kind of all happened for the fact that I get to tell my own story makes it feel better. Yeah, it felt salient that you had this documentary coming out, that people yeah. were purporting to tell your story for you and that you were able to go like, actually, no. I'm, actually, this is how it really happened. <laughs> I'm, I'm going I'm to tell it. And and then your and your boys are such a big part of it. Yeah. How old are they now? Uh, 26. 20, Brandon's 26 and Dylan's 25. And they, you say they really support you. Can you tell me about that? Oh, they support me completely. They were really, they said, Mom, it's time you tell your story. So they really supported me with the book. Um, you know, Brandon is, is very much a part of the business, the family business. And he said he just really wanted to show his mom. And, and he felt like I hadn't been seen. And this was a great opportunity to do that, that it was time. What, what do you mean when he says they feel like <laughs> you've never been seen? Well, because they, you know, they're young and they're, they see more than I do when it comes to uh, these kind of things, and they just thought that it'd be nice to be able to tell the full story. And they weren't even really aware of the full, full story. I mean, yeah. the gritty, gory details, but they knew I, I'm strong for a reason that I, and that I have this kind of philosophical way of even parenting. That they kind of were just curious too, and just like Brandon said, a lot of this was putting pieces of his life back together, or his life, seeing his life unfold in reverse. He likes to say, and we're all very close. It's been very freeing. To know that it's done. It's done. Now I can move on. When you, when you say you have these sort of philosophical approaches to your life, um, I'm struck by something you said at the very beginning that I wanted to, to follow up on. You said, Tom, I'm not a victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that, that, I've heard you say that a few times. That feels important for you to say. Can you tell me about that? Well, I, I feel like um, this weaponized empathy is a thing. I think that um, Weaponized empathy. Yeah, I don't feel like sorry for somebody is effective. I think that like that's just what happened, and now we can move on and 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 be better people. And people's stories can inspire us to be better people and, and good and kind. And and my what I do each day is just try not to hurt anybody. And I think that's if that's a real simple, um, almost rebellious kind of rebel move, is to be happy. Yeah. In spite of everything, anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that kindness and compassion mm-hmm. uh, unconditionally and joy unconditionally yeah. right. are like incredibly powerful things mm-hmm. and kind of radical things in some ways, right? Yeah, you have to be, you know, you, strong and tough and you, life is hard for everybody. Yeah. And so let's be good to each other. I love that idea of weaponized empathy. The idea that when people will say, oh, well, Pam, your you know, pro- private property was stolen from you or you had to go through this or you had to go through that, like... They, they, oh, I'm so sorry for you, but are they, and is that a, is that a genuine emotion? Is, is, that, is that what you mean by weaponized empathy? Well, I just feel like life is hard for everybody, and, and you can be inspired by someone's story and empowered by them, but the, when you tell your story, you're not necessarily looking for sympathy. You're just telling your story. Very zen of you. 
<laughs> is that Zen? I don't know what it is. I say weird stuff sometimes. I don't even know where it comes from. I think I think what I, I think what <laughs> I'm, I'm referring to like is like is like this idea. I mean, I think about this all the time. Is that like the goal is is to just be a boat on the water? Oh, to not be above and not be up in the waves or not be underneath, but just to be on the water. We're all in the soup together. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. What made you move home to Canada? Oh, I always knew I was going to move home to Canada. Um, I wanted to be closer to my parents, too, in their elder years. I've moved them onto my property. They have their own house, their own cabin, so it's enough space. We're not on top of each other. We have five dogs and a huge, beautiful vegetable garden, rose garden, and that's my favorite place. I, I, people would talk t- talk about, and I can relate to this, the idea that when you go home to the place that you're from, you feel like a different person. Do you feel like a different person? I yet? feel exactly the same way I did as I was five years old, running through the same trees. I like to say the trees have known me since birth. You know, you, they're the same trees. And I have this beautiful property, and I remember running on the beach when I was, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, running up to my grandma's house, which I own now, and um, getting popsicles and chocolate bars and giving them to all my friends having a tab I'd like to run up. <laughs> it's just been, it's, it's interesting. I feel like my dad said, because I renovated everything, but I didn't redo really the floors. So my dad said, the only thing the same about this house is that the squeaks are in the same spots when he walks through his house where his childhood home. When did you first decide to go back? Uh, I was in France and COVID hit. And I thought, I need to go home. I went home and started to reflect on my whole life. I mean, it was very... You know, going back home is harder than you than it looks. What do you <laughs> so, mean? well, just going home to retracing the steps of my childhood, which weren't always easy. Yeah. So it was it was very therapeutic, and also people have kind of moved on, stuffed those feelings down, and I kind of I think even for my parents, it can be really annoying having a famous daughter, but not. <laughs> I mean, it's a balance because we do have the beautiful home, and I still have the property, and I'm able to maintain it and keep it for all of us. So there's good and bad. Yeah. With having a famous daughter. I never thought about that. that, that yeah. <laughs> I wrote a book, so that's something, you know, is, is not easy on everybody because, especially my mom, it's kind of tested our relationship a lot because she's found her way to kind of get through her life, her childhood, her marriage, her thing, and, and now to have it public is hard because it's readdressing everything and it's bringing things up. But I feel like this was my purpose. This was my purpose on earth. Yeah. The reason everything, I, I went through everything so I can write about it and that maybe someone can be helped by it too. But you know what it's like with that old, the older generations. They can be like, oh, sure, yeah, I went through hard things. But that's it. You know, you, you move on, you know, you, you pick Sorry, yourself I'm up. Sorry, I'm stir the pot, Pam. You know? That's what they call but, me. But like, <laughs> but like the, 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 your, you, the, the younger generation, of which we are a part of, yeah. we're, we're more willing to investigate and, and to question but why. You know, what, you, know? you know, stress and that kind of stuffing stuff down causes disease. Yeah. I mean, I want my mom to be able to work through this with therapists or, and with me and with both of us together and kind of cut that lineage that... Um, yeah. That generational, that female thing that we do, that, that you know, that walking on eggshells thing. It's like let's not do that anymore. Let's just be honest. Let's just be open and honest about everything, and and you know, not die of some ter- terrible disease from stress. Yeah. So yeah, it's hard work, but it's rewarding. I mean, you would be forgiven, and and you're gonna you're gonna want to stop me halfway through this, but like, I realized watching this documentary, to be honest with you, and I realized reading this book that like. You were a name and you were a photo and you were a role on a TV show. Almost more than anyone else I've met. You were a story. You were a joke on a late night show. To watch you take back and go, I was a real person the entire time. 
<laughs> the entire time, yes. <laughs> yeah. And to not write a book that's filled with, and, and to live a life that's filled with bitterness, but is filled with like a tremendous amount of love for people is unbelievable to me. Where does that come from? Survival. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's a choice that I've made. I've, I mean, I've been a, always been a big reader and I'm an insatiable learner. I like to learn. So I, I studied a lot of psychology very early on. I, you know, my memories, dreams, and reflections, one of the first books I read by Carl Jung is not an easy read to be like diving into it all. And no, I just Jungian believe philo- in, Jungian yeah, psychology. So I mean, I know, it's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, when I was yeah, a teenager yeah. and I was just devouring this yeah. and think, alchemy and Marie-Louise von yeah. Franz and devotion fairy tales, Robert Bly, Iron John. I mean, go every single Bullfinch's mythology. I, I was just sucking it all in and I realized I could paint the picture of my own life and that, yeah, life isn't easy. It's what you do with these, whatever happens to you, not what happens to you. It's, it's just, it's just um, I don't know, I just thought, why not love somebody yeah. in spite of it all? Just keep, you can't change people, you can only love them. Beautiful. <laughs> what does it feel like when you take your story back? I feel great because I'm talking about the stuff that I care about. Like right now you're asking me questions about what I care about instead of my boyfriends and my boobs. You know, that's kind of what yeah, it always was, a, was. Yeah. And I was like, so you know, but but this is I've all oh, this is these are these are the things I talk about with you know really close friends and you know, my kids and it's this it comes from the same place. It comes from my heart. But what what, what did, and can you I, I still don't feel like I got an answer to the question. What what happens when you've lived a life when someone else, where some other people have told your story and profited from your story? And you are taking your own story back. What does that feel like? Well, it's empowering. It's just natural. Like, I kind of knew this was going to happen at some point. I didn't know who was going to be listening or if anybody would care. But um, I'm just really grateful that I've been able to tell my story. It's, it's been the weight of the world off my shoulders, maybe. Well, um, thanks for talking to me uh, at the tail end of this crazy press run you've been on. Page. Yeah. The best part of all of this was book signings, meeting people one-on-one. People are pouring their hearts out to me, and I feel like it's it's great. What, what, what's the most surprising thing someone has said to you at one of these signings? Well, someone said to me you know, that they hadn't talked to their mother in a really long time, but after reading my book, they, they called and reconnected with their family and, and, their, their, and decided not to be bitter, but to be, to be more loving and to think about people's pass and, and I don't know it's just really incredible I see a lot of tears a lot of young girls saying this has really helped me a lot and and I feel empowered by what I've gone through so it feels good it feels like I'm onto something it feels I, really great I hope you can feel in the in the room when you were walking in here you know um, just how much love people feel for you I appreciate it no I feel rooted for it. I feel this is a great time for me I, I, I really appreciate it thanks for being here <laughs> thank you my conversation with Pamela Anderson. I'm still so grateful that we got to spend so much time together. Her memoir is called Love, Pamela. All right, that is it for uh, this episode of Q. Um, um, still can't quite believe Pamela Anderson came into the studio. Still, I, re- I mean, I don't have that experience very much because, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm a bit immune to it. But, you know, I've been fortunate enough in my life to meet some really incredible people through this show and uh, people I've admired for a really long time. And you meet them and you go, oh, OK, well, nice to meet you. You're just a you're just a, a person. Right. Pamela Anderson, by the way, still just a person, but Pamela Anderson walked into the studio and she just had that way about her that everybody in the room said, wow, that's that's Pamela Anderson. Like It was very exciting. She was very gracious. She was very kind to everybody on the show. And um, as you can tell, she's, she's really worked through some stuff and is really so pleased to be telling her own story. Fun fact, 
That was the last interview of her entire press run. So I felt like she had a lot to get out there. That was that was uh, really fun for me. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. The other conversation we uploaded today is... Um, I love this story. It's Cherie Demeline, you know, great Canadian author who... Her dad was a magician, and she spent some time as a magician's assistant, and she says that helped her become a better writer. And you're going to hear her talk about that. All you got to do is click on the podcast, listen to it, and if you want to click subscribe, mash the subscribe bucket bucket button, you can do that. All right, we'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.